Genesis chapter 20. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. Something has changed within Abraham. You see, he had remained at the Oaks of Mamre for an extended amount of time prior to this. That was the place where God had first met him about 25 years earlier, where he had first built that altar to the Lord at, as told to us in Genesis 12, where he returned to live at, and where the Lord and the two angels came to him on that fateful summer day when God determined to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. We're never given the reason for this change of address. Could very well be that the smell of charred flesh and the sulfur was so overwhelming after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Or it could have been that the, that once beautiful valley that was like the Garden of Eden was now nothing more than a wasteland and completely offensive to the patriarch and to Sarah. Whatever the reason, they moved about 40 miles south and west. But as we're told in verse 2, the address may have changed, but the sin had not. Verse 2. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Before we can move into today's verses, we're required to go backwards. Because we need to refocus, have our minds refocused. We need to make sure that we have a correct focus. And to do that, we need to go back, all the way back. Not just to chapter 12, to where we are first introduced to Abraham, but all the way back to chapter 1, where we were first introduced to the main character of the Bible. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God We must understand the why of the Bible, that it's just not a collection of stories to help us to become better people. We must always understand that the accounts in the Bible, and they are accounts, not stories, that they are all given us for one primary reason, God, that we might know Him, that we might be challenged by the reality of Him, that we would know that this life, everything in this life, even our very lives themselves are not about us, that they are about Him. Verse 1 of Genesis 1 continues on, telling us more about this God. Not just that He is, but that He is before the beginning, that He's over time, outside of time, the creator of time. Time belongs to him, as does everything else, everything else that we will ever feel, sense, use, or encounter. It's all his. From him, for him, and to him. And this God is a creative God, as told to us in chapter 1. And this God is a relational God, creating the man and then that woman who he walked in the cool of the day with. And this God is a loving God. He is the reason, the sole reason, that we can and do love, that we can feel love, and that we even desire love. 
And this book, this Bible, is a love letter to us, to the church. But it's about Him. And it, like all love letters, is specific. It's written to a specific people. This letter is not written to all mankind. It's not even written to a specific generation. But it is written to a specific people, to the elect of God. Only they can truly understand it. Only they will have it brought to life in the depths of their regenerated souls. And to those that he loves to the utmost, he condescended to write to us, to give us this love letter. And this love letter is all about the single thing that will satisfy our souls. Him. You see, he knows that since he is holy, which means completely other than, completely other than all that he has ever made or will make, that he, only he, is the only thing that will ever satisfy the longing of his creation. And the love letter that you hold in the palm of your hands, this Bible has a storyline one that we need to understand. You see, there is a hero in this love story. His name is Jesus, and he is God, and he is the knight in shining armor. And in this storyline, there is a villain as well. And his name, well, his name is your name. I bet you were thinking I was going to use another name right there, weren't you? Perhaps Lucifer? After all, wasn't it his fault that Adam sinned? And there you're wrong. You see, Lucifer is responsible for himself and his sin, but Adam is responsible for himself and his sin, just as you are responsible for yourself and your sin. And no one had to force you to sin. You did that on your own. And this is what makes the Bible, this account of this hero of heroes, the king of kings, so amazing. You see, he created you because he is love. And he created you knowing that you would sin against him. Knowing that you would kill yourself and separate yourself from him. And he created you knowing that it would cost him his life in the propitiation of your sin. And this, by definition, is love. And this is the reason that this Bible is given us. In order that we would be enthralled with the lover of our souls. Okay. Now that we've had our minds reset. Now that we've been refocused for the understanding, the reason for this Bible. Who it's all about. Now we can actually go back to the account from today. First of all, you do realize that the accounts of the people in the Bible, they are just selected accounts. They're not like the best of. They're not like the top 10 things that these people have ever done. It's not like these are the highlight reels. Each one is given to us to reveal something specific to us and not even something primarily about the human that is in that, that is the person in that account, but to reveal something about the hero of that account. And this one is no different. You see, in chapter 20, it just seems like we've been here before. 
It seems like Abraham has done this before, like he should have learned from Pharaoh in Egypt and that whole incident. And it seems like the lesson that we are supposed to get from this account is that people don't learn. And this is what we have been told about this account. But you know, the truth is, is that Abraham really is a good character study of people because we really are all just that hard-hearted and about half a sandwich off of a full picnic basket, too. But this isn't why we're given this account. We are not given this account, told this account, because God desires us to know something more about humans, something more about ourselves, or even about Abraham. We are told this account, given this account, because God desires us to know more to know something about more about him. And if I emphasize something that is important to him, and the thing that is important to him that he's emphasizing in this chapter is the covenant of marriage. And this account is given us to communicate the reality that we human beings are moral beings, that since we have been created in his image, we have his morals ingrained within us, even in our fallen state. You see, all humanity knows that something is really wrong within creation in this realm. And the reason that we know that is because we are created in the image of God. And because of this reality, we know that there is right and wrong, good and bad, holy and profane. Even those that have whack values, those strange ethics, they all have morals and ethics, at least of some sort. All because they are created in the image of God. And this reality is told to us in Romans 1, verses 18 through 20 where we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. The evidence for God is all around us. And even inside of us, and even prior to regeneration. And this is why we are without excuse. But since we have killed ourselves, committed self-abortion, we are no longer alive to God. But that doesn't diminish the reality that we are created in His image, and we instinctively know right from wrong. Which is why, from age to age, nation to nation, culture to culture, this account, Genesis chapter 20 is universally objectionable to all people because marriage is sacred. It's a sacred institution in all cultures. But according to God, it's much more than that. According to him, marriage is a covenant. So what was Abraham thinking and telling Sarah to lie like this? And keep in mind that this lie, this account happened soon after Jesus came and had lunch with Abraham. After that day that he reaffirmed that Sarah would conceive and bear a son in less than a year. And it just didn't seem to Abraham like it mattered that his wife, the woman who God specifically told him that his son would be born from in less than a year, 
that she is taken into the harem of another man. And just in case you don't understand how the gestation period of humans, how long that is, or what a gestation period is, gestation means the time from the, the, the fact that a human or uh, something is created in the womb until it is born. And for humans, that's nine months. And nine months is three months short of a year. And since we know that Sarah couldn't have been pregnant enough to be showing it, since Abimelech thought that she wasn't even married, this account had to have happened within weeks, weeks of the Lord appearing to Abraham. And what happened here was since Abraham was traveling in the land of Gerar, and Abimelech, which is just a title such as king, not a proper name, since it was his land, he had first dibs on all the women that he wanted. <clears throat> you see, in that culture, at that time, an unmarried woman would be sold for a dowry price. And then she would become either that person's husband or wife or be put into a harem to do with as he pleased. But I hope that you caught that I said unmarried. Because married women weren't sold like this. Well, they could be taken by force, but they would then be a captive and not placed into the harem. But, and also... Remember this, remember that special unit team, that SEAL team that Abraham had traveling with him? Those 318 highly trained and skilled fighters who took on and defeated those five kings? What about them? Couldn't have Abraham brought them forward, made a show of force against this one single king and said, I don't think so, Abimelech? But this is not what happened in the case of Abraham. He's traveling through the country. Sarah caught the eye of the king. The king asked about Sarah, and both Abraham and she lies to the king. And then the king gave money and possessions to Abraham, and Sarah becomes the next Mrs. Abimelech. And then enter our hero, verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman who you have taken, for she is another man's wife. Chapter 19 had as its human focus that man Lot, a man who's called righteous in 2 Peter 2. But God never appeared to Lot. But here, now, he appears to this foreign pagan king, and he gives him a single message. You are a dead man. Talk about not beating around the bush. And then we're given the response by this pagan king. Now, go back to chapter 19 and read the response of that man who was called righteous when he was given mercy and told to flee from the impending destruction of the valley of Sodom. He, he quibbles over his rights and his desires. This man, listen to how he responds to God. Now Abimelech had not approached her, verse 4. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she's my sister? And she herself say to me, he's my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Verses 4 and 5. He doesn't try to bargain for a lighter sentence. He doesn't try to use a technicality to get out under, from under the just judgment of God. He just tells the truth. And then we come to verse 6. Then God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, back in chapter 18, 
that account of the Lord visiting Abraham prior to the destruction of Sodom, the seminal verse in that chapter, the one that is the reason for that account, that describes and defines that account, is verse 25, which says, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death from the wicked, or with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? And in chapter 19, last week's chapter, the chapter that describes the angel heading, in, heading into Sodom and then the destruction of that evil city, the seminal verse there, the one that sums it up, that describes and defines it, is verse 19. So it was when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the, of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Both of them focus on God. And in this chapter, this verse, verse 6, is the seminal verse. The verse that describes, defines this chapter. In reality, this verse should be kept at the forefront of our minds. You should highlight it, circle it, put stars around it. It, like Genesis 1-1, is important in understanding, our, in understanding of God and even our relationship with Him. But before we can begin to mine this verse for meaning, let's back up to verse 4, where Abimelech said that he was an innocent man. Now, he was not an innocent man in all ways, but in this one single way he was. We need to understand what he is claiming to be innocent of. Because he's not innocent of lusting. He wasn't claiming to be innocent of not desiring that woman. And this was not the charge being laid against him. The, the matter at hand, the charge being laid against him, was violating the covenant of marriage. In speaking to the Lord, Abimelech said that he hadn't touched this woman. But that isn't where he's claiming his innocence. Having relations with her was not the issue that he was claiming innocence about. His innocence comes in that he was told that Sarah and Abraham were brother and sister, not man and wife. He's claiming innocence about taking the wife of another man. And this is the matter in which he's claiming innocence. And this is the charge that the Lord is bringing against this king. You have violated the sacred covenant of marriage, verse 3. And back in chapter 19, we, we saw that it was written in such a manner that we were forced to compare it with chapter 18 of Genesis. Compare the two men at the forefront of those chapters, Lot and Abraham. And just as those chapters are written as a comparison with each other, this account is also written as a comparison. Comparing this, compa this pagan, um, pagan sinning king with a man after God's own heart. Comparing this king here and his actions with the chosen king of Israel, King David. You see, this man saw Sarah. He approached her brother concerning her, asked questions about her, and then after that interaction, after finding out that she's available, he then took her into the, her, his harem. David, on the other hand, he has a different story. That account is given to us in 2 Samuel 11, beginning in verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with them and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Reba. But David remained at Jerusalem. 
It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the, be- the woman was beautiful, very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And what was the reaction of that man, the man after God's own heart, when hearing that this woman was taken? The woman that he's lusting after, hearing who she is and whose she is. And that's pretty important because her dad was Eliam. And Eliam was the son of Ahithophel, one of David's most trusted advisors. Bathsheba was his granddaughter. And because of David's sin against his family, Ahithophel will lead Absalom, David's son, in the revolt against him. And then there's Uriah the Hittite. Uriah, he was one of the 30, one of David's most trusted fighting men. Verse 4, what was the reaction when David found out who she was? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. And when she became pregnant, David decided the thing to do was to murder Uriah at the hands of the Ammonites, which he did. And we are supposed to compare the actions of both of these kings in this matter. We are supposed to. And at the same time, listen to how David, when he was confronted by the Lord with his actions, not in a dream, but by the prophet Nathan, listen to how he responds. 2 Samuel verse, chapter 12, verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That's the same thing that the Lord said in verse 6, that he prevented this king from doing. What David said here is truth, that when we sin, and we need to understand that our sins are always against God, not humans. Abimelech, she, he did take Sarah from Abraham, both humans, but it wasn't against them that God is concerned with him sinning. Saints, how much better would our understanding of a God be if we would allow this lesson from this section of Scripture to be burned into our hearts? If we would learn the lesson of David and Bathsheba. Instead, though, we have been taught that the account of David, just as this account, we've been taught and we think that this account is about these people. Oh, this innocent king the lying Sarah, that cowardly Abraham. And it's not. This account like that of David and Bathsheba, both are about the Lord. The Lord who is Lord over the covenant of marriage and the Lord who is Lord over the institution of sex and the Lord who we sin against whenever we break the covenant of marriage. And that covenant of marriage, it doesn't seem like such a big deal or an important institution to us. And we take it for granted, and we don't make much of this institution. But I would submit to you that since it's the first covenant that God makes made between humans and other humans, that it is the bedrock of the church, and even the Christian experience. And for this reason, here in this church, we strive for healthy marriages, Because we know that healthy marriages produce healthy relationships within the church. 
And for this reason, Saint, allow me to ask you this. How is your marriage covenant? And do you realize, do you realize that when you did that, when you made that covenant, do you realize what God said, that the two shall become one, and that he did this? Genesis 2.24, Mark 10.8. And this is the same message that's given to us today from verse 6. Yes, you did choose your spouse. You did that. But at the same time, in the same way, in the same way that verse 6 is truth from today, in the same way it was God who chose your spouse, who gave them to you. And what we're supposed to glean from that is that your life is not your own, and that if you have been given a spouse, that your life is your spouse. And if you are the husband in that relationship, your job is to lead your wife. You are to be in charge. You are to be out front. You are the one needing to take the reins and even at times take the bullets. And you are to do this by dying to yourself in all things. Just as Christ died for the church, Ephesians 5.25 which means that your wife must be at the center of your thoughts. Her well-being, her well-being, not your desires. Her well-being, spiritually first, but emotionally and mentally and even physically, must be placed above your own desires, your own wishes, your own well-being. You must be willing to work hard so that she is taken care of, even if that means that you work two or three jobs. And that idea that you deserve a break today, that's a man-made idea. And you're thinking, but wait, if I die to myself, won't I then become a doormat for her? And and what happens if she takes advantage of me? I mean, what if she just keeps on taking and taking and taking and never gives back to me? I'm never fulfilled. Isn't that unfair? I'm going to refer you back to verse 6 from today. And is this not what we, the church, have done and continue to do to Christ? And it is in this context, with this full knowledge, that we men are told by God that we are required to die for our wives. If you have been given a wife, you have been given a good thing, Proverbs 18:22, and she is a jewel, Proverbs 31:10. And she is to be esteemed as the second greatest gift from God to you after salvation. And here in our chapter today, God has given this pagan king an order to follow. The one an order that reemphasizes the importance of this covenant. Verse 7, he says, Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Remember now, who these humans are in this account. We have the father of faith on one side, the man who is said to have believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And on the other side, we have this pagan king who is never said to be righteous. But listen to how this pagan king acts, what he did when he was commanded by God to act. 
in a dream, no less. Verse 8, So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. And then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. Did you hear the shame when this, right, the, this righteous man acts in unrighteousness? And do you hear how this pagan wonders at how and even why this so-called man of God would act in this manner? He wonders at Abraham and calls what he did, what he brought on this kingdom, as the great sin. And that great sin is the sin against the covenant of marriage. And it is laid at the feet of the man who is supposed to be the prophet of God. And Which brings us to this exchange between these two men in verses 10 and 11. We hear Abimelech say to Abraham in verse 10, What did you see that you did this thing? And the answer in verse 11, Abraham said, I did it because I thought. There's no fear of God in all this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Abraham, what did you see that made you think this way? Uh, I didn't see anything. I just thought. And then Abraham uses a lame half-truth as an excuse. Verses 12 and 13. Besides, she is in my, indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, Hey, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place in which we come to you, say of me, he's my brother. Saints, if there is anything, any practical thing that we should take from this account, one definitely is that we should never give excuses for sin because they're always going to fall flat, no matter what. They will never excuse our sin, and they will never be believed, and nor will they justify our actions. But then this pagan king, he follows through on his actions. He follows through on obeying the Lord. And then he goes beyond what the Lord has commanded him to do. Beginning in verse 14, Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah to his wife to him. And behold, Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. And this statement, that statement was made to that man that this pagan king should have desired to have nothing to do with. He should have done and should have said the same thing that Pharaoh in Egypt did. Get out. I mean, after all, all he was commanded to do was to return Sarah. But because this man Abraham was a prophet of God, this king honored him as such. At the same time, though, what he says to Sarah reveals exactly what he thinks of this man. Verse 16. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It's a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. As proof that Sarah was innocent, as proof that she had retained her honor, he gave her brother a thousand pieces of silver. And he did this to vindicate her. 
And here, too, we see the reality. We see the reality that this king understood that even though Sarah went along with the lie of her husband, she did it honorably, meaning that she was acting in submission to the man who was called, who she called Lord, her husband. And because she would place herself in harm's way in order to, or, to honor God in the honoring of his covenant of marriage, this king desired to vindicate her. Which brings us to the final verses from today. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Saints, who in this account acted in faith? And which one of these men acted in fear? It was Abraham who said that he thought that they would kill him, so he lied. And it was Abimelech who obeyed the command of this foreign god, who came to him in a dream, but who also had closed the wombs of all the women in the house. And, and, and why, pray tell, did Abraham actually pray to God? Why did he intercede on behalf of this king and his household? Out of compassion? Maybe out of regret over his actions? Maybe out of fear? Or, or maybe he just kind of thought to himself, you know, I am supposed to be the prophet of God after all. Maybe this is the thing I should do. No, the reason he prayed is because God told Abimelech that he would. He prayed because of the reality of verse 6 that is told to us in verse 6. When God said to him, Abimelech, in the dream, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. And this is the reality that we must grab hold of. As much as the covenant of marriage is focused on in from our account today, there is an even greater reality, reality that we must grasp. The reality of the sovereignty and majesty of God. This is why. When we preach the gospel, and we are commanded to preach the gospel to ourselves and to everyone else, we must always do it biblically. Biblically, you're thinking? Yes, biblically. We must know that the gospel is not for man. It is to man, but it is for God, for his glory, for his honor, for his holiness. Man is the recipient of his grace, but the gospel is all for the glory of God. And this must always be the primary reason why we preach the gospel. Not because people are in need of a Savior, even though they are. Not because they have killed themselves and will face the just judgment of God, and they will. We preach for the glory of God, which means that we tell people the truth of God never trying to soften the reality of who he is or who people are. And when we sin, it is always against God alone that we sin. Well, our sins may affect or even be directed at humans, but at the root, the real sin is always against God. You see, here in verse 6 from today, we hear God telling this pagan king that he knows why the king acted in his sin. 
You see, he lusted after a woman, but he acted in his integrity. But then God clarifies, reveals just what the integrity of this man was. That if it were not for God, he would have acted like David and sinned against God. It was God who prevented him from sinning, prevented him from violating the covenant of marriage. He, the king, did not do this. God did. And then he, God, reveals who he, God, prevented this man from sinning against. Not Sarah, although she would have been the person he would have violated. And not Abraham, although he would have violated that covenant of marriage that Abraham had made. It was to neither of these humans that God prevented this pagan king from sinning against, even though he did prevent him from sinning against them as well. But primarily, singularly, most importantly, it was him. And this is the same truth that David said when confronted by Nathan the prophet. He confessed to that man that it was God that he had sinned against. And this truth is so important that God had David pen Psalm 51 over it. It wasn't enough for David to confess his sin against God to that man, Nathan. He, God, desired us to know how central, just how central he, God, must be in our understanding concerning sin, concerning all aspects of our life. He knows that it is when we are painfully, clearly aware of our sin, that it is then that we are more fully aware of the holiness of God. And it is then that we will more fully be aware of His mercy towards us and His grace towards us. Listen to our brother David after God allowed him to sin in the sin of Bathsheba. Listen to Psalm 51. To the choir master, the psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And again, there is no mention of Uriah, even though more often than not, more people are more upset about the murder of Uriah than the sin of the breaking the covenant of marriage with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David does not plead to God for mercy or grace because he was sorry or because he had gotten caught. And he didn't even address and plead for his mercy because of his standing with the Lord. Lord, you know I am your your selected king. He knows that his only hope is found in God in his love, in his mercy. And how does he know this? Verse 3, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. He knows this because he was made painfully aware. He was confronted with the utter reality of who he is. Not who he wanted the world to think he was. Not who the world thought that he was but who he was. There was no situational ethics here, no personal truths. He said, 
against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Since you may wonder at why I continue to confront you with the reality of who you are, why I'm constantly reminding you that you are a sinner. Because this doesn't seem to be very loving, very nice or very kind. But in reality, I have come to know as, da- as did this other David, that it is the kindness and the mercy of God to reveal the truth of who I am, of who you are. And it's, and it's his kindness that leads to repentance. Again, listen to the confessions of David. He said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you, de- you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom from the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. It was the truth of God that both broke the bones of David and then would allow them to rejoice. And it was the presence of, the knowledge of, the Holy One that was the joy of his salvation. And what did David know would be the result of the revelation of God, the revelation of his sin? Verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. He, like all good Reformed theologians, was confident in the reality that all that are of him will come to him. All we need to do is tell them the truth, that they are sinners in need of a Savior. And in case you're ever wondering about the sin of murdering Uriah the Hittite, why that didn't seem to matter, David brought it up here. He said, deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. He knew that he was guilty of shedding of the innocent blood of Uriah. He knew it, and he relied only on God forgiveness, for forgiveness because of it. And what was that result of his forgiveness of God? The deliverance of the sin of David from his life? Complacency in the life of David? Maybe smugness? He said, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. He preached the reality of God to sinners, because in the mercy of God, God had made him aware of the holiness of God and the sin that he was. And be aware of what the sacrifices of God are. A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These are not sacrifices to God. These are not things that you offer to him. You don't break your heart. He breaks your heart. And to you out there who have yet to have the your heart broken, your bones broken. 
to have that blessing of the crushing reality of who you are made aware to you. That you are a monster of iniquity. And because of this, that one day you will stand before this holy God, you, that the one that you're sinning against, you will. And when you do, if you do so on your own behalf, on your own righteousness, you will get exactly what you desire. An eternity outside of the blessing of God. And because it is my desire to see God glorified in His church, in His creation, I desire to see you come to Christ. I desire that He be magnified in the greatest demonstration of His love, in the saving of a soul. So come to Christ. Be reconciled to God. May your pride, may your selfishness in desiring to be seen as cool or anything other than the truth of who you are, be damned in order that your soul will not be. Sinner, flee to the hero of the Bible, the hero of the universe, the hero of all eternity. Flee to the God who created you and in whom you will finally find satisfaction for your soul. And saint, the redeemed of God, as you read this love letter from your creator, the lover of your soul, Force yourself to seek Him in it, to learn more about Him from it. Every time you open the Word, ask yourself this. Ask the Lord to reveal this to you. Pray to Him and ask, Why, Lord? Why did you put this here? What are you desiring me to learn concerning you? And you can have confidence that when you do, as you do, He will break your bones. And He will crush your sin-filled, self-centered ego. And reveal more of His holiness to you. As you wonder at the grace of God that has shown to you a sinner. Let's pray.